Welcome to the Gay Buddhist Forum, where teachers from all schools of Buddhism offer their perspectives on the Dharma and its application in modern times, especially for LGBTQI audiences. These talks are offered freely to the world and made possible by appreciative listeners. If you would like to support our efforts to share the Dharma with underserved audiences, please visit gaybuddhist.org. There you can donate, find a list of upcoming speakers, or enjoy many hundreds of these recorded talks dating back to 1996. Okay, before we hear from Nina today, let's go around the room and introduce ourselves. Um, we're going to start. My name is Roy. I'm Bill. Jim. Rich. I'm Carl. My name is Michael. My name is Eduardo. Jose. George. Cass. Cameron. Jay. I'm Joe. I'm Paul. Larry Wish. My name is Clint. My name is Oswaldo. I'm Jim. Charlotte. Peter. I'm Jack. Kurt. James. I'm Michael. I'm Jerry. David. Jennifer. My name is Cage. My name is Mark. And my name is Alzac. My name is Eric. Tom. I'm Kay. My name is Jerry. I'm Richard. I'm Tom. My name is Brian. My name is David. Ricardo. Marty. Okay, that's everyone. Maruk. Maruk. Welcome once again to everyone. Uh, our speaker today is Nina Wise. Nina is a well-known performer who has devoted her career to investigating the relationship between art and spirit. She's the Artistic Director of Motion and is the recipient of multiple fellowships from the National Endowment for the Arts and the Marin Arts Council, as well as receiving seven Bay Area Critics Circle Awards. Also an author, her stories and articles have appeared in The Sun, Yoga Journal, Tricycle, Inquiring Mind, and Whole Earth Review. Welcome, Nina. Thank you. Nice to be here. It's an honor to be here. What a great group. Um, what a beautiful room. So, um, I'm going to talk today about, I, I gave my talk a title. And the title of the talk today is uh, Spring Awakening. Um, and I got kind of excited about giving this talk. We'll see if I can actually pull it off. Because um, because it's Easter, which isn't a Buddhist holiday. <laughs> and it's also Passover, which isn't a Buddhist holiday. <clears throat> um, and it's also the time of year that um, the Buddha was born. So at the beginning of the month, we celebrate uh, the Buddha's birthday. So my hope is to integrate some of these narratives that we're embedded in today and look at what some of the teachings are that are common to all of them. I have a degree in religious studies, so it, it kind of, I got kind of excited about uh, this, this moment in time and seeing if we could um, make some sense of it in a way that uh, helped, helped us live through these times of the year um, 
and uh, identify what they might mean to us because the myths themselves are somewhat puzzling in a way to many of us. So I just wanted to kind of get a sense in the room. Who in the room, um, in terms of your uh, religion of origin, you know, what you were raised in, are Catholic? I know some. A lot. Isn't that interesting? And here you are. <laughs> well, good, because we're going to look at some of that. And who are um, other Christian, you know, Protestant religions? Uh-huh, just about everybody else. And who are Jewish? Anybody Jewish in here? A few. Uh-huh. And um, Buddhist. Buddhist uh, religion of origin. No one. Wow. And Hindu? Muslim? Ah, uh-huh, great. So we're pretty well represented. Hmm. Okay, good. So that gives me kind of a sense. I mean, I was raised Jewish, and I, I observed Judaism still. So who of you still observe, besides Buddhism, um, your your religions of or, your of origin? We might just call them now: Catholicism or Christianity or Judaism or Muslimism. Yeah, keep it up just so we can see. Uh-huh. And and who of you have kind of given it up because it doesn't? <laughs> yeah. Okay, good. So, thank you. So regardless of whether or not we've given up our religion of origin, I think that those religions, those spiritual traditions inform us in some way. And I was thinking in the past couple of days about I haven't really extended this thought process uh, Far, far enough to reach any real conclusions. But I started thinking about um, Easter Sunday, partly because I was giving this talk today, and how regardless of whether or not we believe in this myth that informs this day, this myth of Jesus having been, and I don't know the myth really well because I wasn't raised in it, but you know, uh, kind of accused and taken to the cross and crucified and then uh, resurrecting on Sunday. You know, we all like take the day off and go to brunch and banks are closed down and, you know, we're some, our whole culture is somehow affected by this narrative that has landed in our midst, um, whether we like it or not or believe in it or not or whether or not it's our, from our tradition or not, here we are. And uh, I found myself madly running around Whole Foods yesterday looking for a chocolate bunny <laughs> to give to a friend. I just suddenly had to give my friend a chocolate bunny. And I'm a Jew. And um, the, the whole thing, and, and of course we didn't have any. And I went from aisle to aisle with my car up and down the aisles saying they must have a chocolate bunny at Whole Foods. And they didn't. And so, you know, in this state of utter consternation at that point, I asked the checkout lady, don't you have chocolate bunnies? And she goes, oh, they're entirely sold out. <laughs> like everyone was looking for chocolate bunnies. <laughs> so I didn't get one. Um, so what's that about? Um, I'd like to look, at, look today at some of the narratives that inform th- this day and this time of year. Um, and see, see if we can, in Tibetan teaching they have something called 
<clears throat> the inner teaching, the outer teaching, and the secret teaching. There are layers to the teachings. And it's really interesting to start to investigate those layers and see if we can identify the outer, the inner, and the secret teachings. And the secret teachings are the most kind of esoteric and often most difficult to understand. But in some ways, um, well, I don't even want to say it, not necessarily even the most profound, but just gives it this sort of esoteric and deeply spiritual meaning. So we're going to go through some of those layers today around these mythologies. Um, and see what we can find. So the first layer that I want to look at around today is this layer of um, spring itself. That m many of these holidays, I think, occur around this time of year because when we look out at nature, even in the city, when we look out at nature, it's gone through this period of incredible dormancy, especially in other parts of the world where the winter is very uh, um, long and cold and the, the skies are gray. They certainly have been gray here. Um, and snow covers the landscape and ice. It's very cold. And we see the trees. I was thinking about this. The trees losing all of their leaves and just turning into this, the, you know, what you see, and a friend of mine in New York has trees outside her window, she loves this time of year, because she feels like she gets to see the bones of the tree, that the actual tree reveals itself to her. But it's also a sense of things having died, right? The, the crops die, we can say die, and then we'll look at what we mean by that word later. And the leaves die off of the trees, and the flowers die, and the, um, the fruit is no longer available to us, mostly there's some fruit that grows in the spring. And there's really this sense of things having um, kind of divested themselves of a certain quality of their own life. And bears go into hibernation, you know, the critters are different, um, the birds often leave if they migrate and go to a different place, so that the sounds that we hear in the environment are completely different. We're moving through this time um, that has a quality of darkness and coldness and hibernation and lack of color. And then suddenly, spring is born. We don't really do anything <laughs> to make that happen. It happens naturally around us. And not only is spring born like life kind of coming back, but it's in technicolor. Like, the trees just don't get their leaves back, which you would think would happen if you just kind of thought about it. Okay, they lose their leaves, they get their leaves back. No, no, no. They burst into blossoms. This is pretty odd, really. Think about it. They, they, suddenly things are all in bloom. And they're, they're in these colors. In my neighborhood in San Rafael, <clears throat> the trees, they're these trees that are like bright pink, that bright pink, this color that you would never wear. It's too much. <laughs> that I would never wear. My mother, however, did. Which is probably why I don't. <laughs> and the, and the, they're scented as well. 
There are lilac trees in my neighborhood. There are a lot of Italians who settled Gersel Park, where I live, and they planted a lot of um, fruit trees and lilac trees. And so not only are they like bursting with color, but they're bursting with scent. And then the birds come back, and suddenly the whole neighborhood is like chirping away in the morning. It's pretty wild. And I think as human beings, there is a need, an organic need, to celebrate that time of year. <clears throat> to celebrate with a, a sense of um, appreciation, of gratitude, especially when we didn't know that this would happen. Right? You don't know that it will come back. You, you think it will. You have, have the experience of it. But, but because we're not a causal factor in that, we don't know that this spring will happen. And suddenly it happens. And it's a, really a cause for celebration. And um, there's a... I have to find that paper. <clears throat> there, if you look into the history of the religion, it emerges from... I did print it. I probably left it in the printer. Uh, um, a pagan religion. You can Google it if you're interested, the way I did. Where there... And and there were names of goddesses with names very similar to Easter, Ostere, something like that, and Ashere, and many goddesses that were the goddesses of fertility and birth. And one of the most common stories or myths was that this goddess had a um, consort, a male consort, I think named Addis, who died and was reborn and died and was reborn and died and was reborn. And there were these big ceremonies about that resurrection. So in part, what we're doing is celebrating this, this rebirth of spring all around us. Is there a clock that I might? Yes, I, I, I'm keeping track for you. You're keeping track, but I might Here's like to one. also keep track. Here you go. Okay. <laughs> and when can I go to? Um, we usually go, are you going to be doing questions and answers? I can do. Okay, and then we usually go till about 10 minutes. Sometimes I'll push it till five minutes to the hour. 10 to 12? Okay, yeah. thank you. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, on the outer level, we can look at it part of what, why we're so inclined to take the day off and go to brunch on Easter Sunday is in celebration of this um, rebirth of spring. And you can see that it, and these holidays take hold because of that need in the organism to mark time in this way, to be a part of the celebration that's going on all around us, to be a part of this big transformation in our natural landscape. And we find ourselves, like it or not, kind of many of us having this inner sense like of, of a need to celebrate at this time of year in some way, a need to be with our families and eat the food of the season, a need to be with our friends and kind of acknowledge this moment in time. And it's really a, a beautiful component of human culture that we take time off, that we leave our work lives, that we leave our kind of sense of having to make money and having to succeed in the world and kind of chill and eat together, and eat together in a way that's really celebrative. So that's the kind of outer experience, um, which has 
many levels to it as well. It's also a time when, um, when we look around us <laughs> that like chickens are being born. There's a big display now at the California Academy of Sciences of, chick- of chicks, you know, and there's like hundreds of chicks in this big display and people are coming from all over to watch. We have to like look at chicks this time of year. It's terribly reassuring <laughs> to look at chicks and chicks lay eggs. And there's this sense of incredible reassurance that chickens are being born and chickens are laying eggs and we get to eat them. And so we paint them and go, look at what's happening. Look, at, We get to have this moment in time when we're being fed by the universe, fed by the forces of nature. And bunnies are being born and lambs. I was just up on the North Coast and there are... Lambs gambling about. Isn't that what they do, lambs? They frolic and gamble. And in the body, there's this sense of reassurance of, oh yes, that life is happening. Even though I didn't do anything to make it happen. In bunnies. Um, So what we also can look at, and this is a little more complicated, is in the same way that nature is being reborn, all around us, we also have the opportunity to be reborn. What does that mean? To be the outer myth is that um, Jesus was crucified and then reborn. Right? There was a resurrection. And what I've been thinking about in terms of what that might mean has to do with the opportunity in our own lifetimes to to reawaken, we might call it, to our own essential nature, or what we call Buddha nature. The Buddha also was reborn, in a way. He left the palace. He was born a prince. He left the palace. And he saw, the, the story goes, he saw on the streets, before he left the palace, that, do you know this story about the Buddha and his birth, that he... He was not allowed to leave the palace because the, someone had whispered into, the, into his father's ear, the prophets, that, you know, that, he would, that he would leave. And so they kept him sequestered in the walls of the palace. And he talked his, um, his driver, basically, his carriage driver, into letting him out. You know, he goes, you know, I don't really have to stay here. Take me out. He'd become good friends with his helper. And off he went into the streets. And he saw um, a man who was very ill. And he saw uh, someone who was dying. And these were the awakening, the beginnings of his awakening, because they were protecting him from anything like that in the palace, the story goes. And so he fled, because he felt like he had to understand aging and decay and illness and death and dying that he had to come to terms with those reality, realities, that suffering, human suffering. And so he took to the streets and as a mendicant, as a beggar, where they gave up his wealth, he gave up his palatial privileges and just took to the streets. And through that abandonment of the, of the um, kind of uh, delusion of wealth, being the um, giver of our well-being, he became awakened. And what did he awaken to? 
He awakened to what we call um, Buddha nature or true nature, which is this quality of being that is deeply at ease and peaceful and at rest in its own equanimity and a quality of joy um, that is independent of outer um, factors. It's not about wealth. It's not even about health. It's simply our own nature. And the teachings say that when the delusions in the mind fall away, the obfuscations fall away, when our delusions all kind of evaporate and the, the kind of ideas that cloud the mind, what we discover is our own nature, our own true nature, which is peaceful and loving and kind and compassionate and at rest, and we can see clearly. And each of us, most likely, I would venture, have had moments in our lifetimes when that happens, yeah? Either just automatically, or because we fall in love, or walking in nature, or we take LSD. (laughs) Something happens in the delusions, or we go on a long meditation retreat, or we fast. Or we just um, wake up in the morning one moment and we have clarity in the moment. (coughs) And there isn't a sense, this is the most remarkable thing, there isn't a sense of having achieved anything out there. There's a sense of suddenly things evaporating from the mind that cloud us and we see clearly. Yes? Sound familiar? And my teacher in India, Punjaji, said, when you glimpse the truth, he called it. Devote yourself to that glimpse. Devote your life to that glimpse. Because the seeing sometimes falls away. The moment of clarity falls away. But the knowing of clarity doesn't. The knowing of truth doesn't. It rests in the being as a, as a guidepost, as a light. And we can return to that over and over and over again. And that's our rebirth. That's our spring. That's our inner spring. That coming back to the light, coming back to what we know to be true, coming back to our true nature. And probably that's why we're all here. That's why we're all sitting in this room together. There's um, all of the Buddhist teachings, you know, are so deeply interwoven. It's it's incredibly interesting to see how everything informs everything else. They say when we awaken to our Buddha nature, it has two qualities, um, and it's like the right and the left hand. It has a quality of wisdom, and it has a quality of compassion. That when we awaken to this. Um, Uh, non-deluded state, we can call it. And they say when you put your hands together in that mudra, when you sit, we're we're literally putting together our wisdom and our compassion that are our nature. And we come to sit to kind of drop into that state. 
that state of um, quiet, which can give rise to this insight about our true nature, our Buddha nature. They also say, and this is, I think, my favorite teaching in the whole world, <laughs> that, um, that awakening is the deepest form of relaxation. That rather than efforting to awaken or trying to acquire awakening, that when you let go deeply enough, when you relax deeply enough, what surfaces in the mind and the heart is this quality of awakening. That it's the deepest, deepest form of letting go. Which is a rigorous practice. The letting go practice. And another teaching which I love, which is related to this, is that there are four opportunities for awakening that happen commonly in every lifetime. Do you know this teaching? So one is when you sneeze. Right? Because you can't, you're kind of out of control. You try to control it because it's embarrassing and you, know, you don't want to like throw your snot all over the room. And you're trying to hold it in. And then suddenly, choo! In that moment, that's a good practice. You might want to try it. That moment, if, you, if you're aware of it, is a moment of awakening where everything lets go and there's this moment of clarity. It's a big letting go, like a Manjushri sword cutting through. It's also why they go around in the Zendu and whack you. <laughs> or um, in Tibetan practice, you know, the, the master, everyone will be very quietly meditating and the master will go, And you let go. And whew, you can feel the mind for an instant being free. Free of all the things you're worried about, you know, whether or not people will love you correctly, which they never do. <laughs> whether or not you'll have enough money, whether or not the radiation will make it from Japan over here and get in your, you know, latte. <laughs> Whether or not something horrible will happen to your dog and it will cost you an arm and a leg because I suddenly have to go to the emergency surgery down on 18th Street over there. And there's a lot to be concerned about, and we're concerned about it all the time. Whether or not you'll be able to refinance your house and the housing market and the whole stock market, which is some huge delusion that we all terribly believe in and throw our money into, will crash. It will, probably. And so we can be worried all the time. And then the master goes, Pat! You go, huh! You let go. You let go of all of the fantasies that occupy the mind constantly. Constantly, constantly. And you let go. So one opportunity is sneezing. Another opportunity is... Um, I'm suddenly going to forget them. Sneezing? I just thought of three. What's the fourth one? Oh dear. All right, I'll have to come back to it. So one of them is sneezing. One of them is when you have orgasm. And that same thing happens. So it's another thing you can't really control. You can try to control it, and you can do practices to control it, and you can hold it in. And but, funk, there's a let go. And in that moment, in that moment, 
there's a release in the mind lets go. And the third one, and I've forgotten the fourth one, but I'll think of it before the end of the thing, I hope. If not, you can Google it. <laughs> you can Google anything about Buddhism on the internet. Right now, it's, it's very exciting. Um, the other is the moment um, right before you die, as you die. There's a moment of, of, of very deep letting go. And if you're around somebody who's dying, um, often you can feel that in the room. Because not only does that person let go, but you let go in the company of that person. There's a contagion, like a mental contagion, where suddenly, even though maybe a moment later a deep grief will set in, that in that moment of letting go, there's a very profound expansiveness. And it's why so many people who are around, uh, people who are dying in the profession, feel it's a great privilege to be in that moment with somebody, this deep letting go. Who's felt that with somebody dying in a room? And kind of a peace enters your being, and a peace enters the room, and the mind lets go. It lets go of all the delusions that um, keep us from being clear. So it's a moment of awakening. What we awaken to again is this Buddha nature, or our true nature, this quality of being that resides within us, regardless of what's going on in the outer world, that has these qualities that are named, quality of equanimity, peace. And in that peace arises, kind of at the same moment, a quality of compassion and caring for ourselves and others a quality of seeing clearly, a quality of joy. But joy is too big a word. It's, it's, a, it's a joy that is t- so infused with peacefulness that it doesn't have that kind of Nyah! joy. It's a whole different quality of joy, which is like a big like a lake or sky. As we tap into this aspect of ourself that is consciousness itself. Um... And so that's another inter- interesting aspect of the myths that accompany this time of year, that is as these characters awaken, as Jesus awakens, or maybe he was born awakened, but as he lives through his life in an awakened state, and as um, the Buddha awakens, and as Moses awakens, Moses, another story of this time of year, you know, he, he sent down the Nile in a basket. Did you all see Exodus? Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments. It's on TV now if you've missed it. It doesn't um, hold up. It doesn't. <laughs> Damn. But I always love that scene that I don't even know if it's real, but I imagine it if his, um, you know, the, the firstborn uh, boys have to be killed because there's a story that the prophet gave to the, um, not the emperor, no, the pharaoh, that... Um, that they, we, a Jewish firstborn son would take over the land and so the midwives come into the picture and they can't kill this firstborn child so he's put in a basket of, of um, woven reeds right? don't you love this image? Float, this little infant floats down the Nile and they watch him his sister watches him through the reeds I love that part <laughs> so pretty and he's taken into the palace by the daughter of the pharaoh 
he somehow doesn't, this is the part, you know, these myths have these like weird <laughs> parts that don't quite work. Like, did the father not notice she wasn't pregnant? <laughs> and is suddenly bringing this child into the thing after he's ordered them all killed. He's <laughs> anyway, and then uh, another wonderful part of the story is his mother becomes his wet nurse. She, um, because the sisters followed the progress, and she, she runs to the, the, the pharaoh's daughter, who's now taking him into the palace, and says, don't you need a wet nurse? So his own, she runs back home, and his own mother breastfeeds him. But at some point in his life, as he sees one of the slaves being beaten by a foreman, he can't tolerate the, um, the violence. He can't tolerate the violence. He can't tolerate the oppression. And so he actually kills the foreman, and then goes off into the desert having committed this crime. And at that moment, God appears and speaks to him. And so it's this, again, this moment of discovery of his own identity that is filled with compassion. And the story is all about um, freeing the slaves, freeing the slaves. And it's, it's celebrated for seven days. And as you go through this ceremony, you're obligated to tell the story year after year after year after year of freeing the slaves. And just like you were a slave at one point in your life, other people are slaves today. And you cannot separate your identity from them. You are obligated to free people from oppression throughout all time. And you take that vow on at, during this time of year, that, you, that you're obligated because you were once enslaved, so you're not different. And so often we move through lives and see people who are suffering and separate ourselves. That they're suffering, but we're not. We're better than them. There can be a very slight movement of the mind, a very slight turning away. The person on the side of the street who's homeless because they're a Vietnam vet or an Iraqi vet and needs our help, but we turn away. There's a turning away. We are not them. But, it, but when you become awakened, you see that you are them. And as a Jew this time of year, you are the slave. You are not separate from people who are oppressed. You are them. And you take on this vow, this bodhisattva vow, to help those who are oppressed because you are not separate. And we can, we can look at this non-separate teaching in a lot of ways. Um, Thich Nhat Hanh gives this teaching. Um, one of the hardest things to understand in Buddhist teaching is this, the truth that they talk about, that you're of um, anatta, that, you're, that there is no separate self. Right? You've all heard about that teaching, right? And maybe puzzled about it, like, what does that mean? <laughs> There is no separate self. You can't separate yourself from all being. And the way Thich Nhat Hanh teaches that is he talks about how um, that if you really start to look deeply into the nature of reality, our very elements and body are made from stardust. Really. That's not a myth. And they're actually thinking now that, um, I was talking to an astronomer recently, that, um, that life itself came from, was seeded from the stars. The or there's an, all kinds of theories about the origins of life, new ones. And they're thinking now that the origins of life were seeded from 
um, the stars kind of dropped onto the earth and out of that that um, kind of complex molecule that was dropped, life emerged. And that we're, that we drink the water that falls from the um, rains that came from the rivers that, um, that then forms the molecules in our own body. We eat the plants that grew out of the compost of the dying leaves, you know. And so there's a kind of constant uh, uh, occupation in our own bodies of all and everything. We are a part of all and everything, and everything is a part of us. And they gave this beautiful teaching about when you do walking meditation, to contemplate that you are actually walking on the sunshine, because the sunshine formed the earth. And you are walking on the rivers, because the rivers formed that earth that you're walking on. And you're walking on the rain, and you're walking on the, um, the winds, that as we walk, but it's not only as we walk, it's actually what we're made out of. We're made out of all and everything and cannot separate ourselves from this great, um, this great body of being that is the universe. A friend of mine, David went Wallen, one of my high school friends, told me recently he was walking in nature. He took a vacation, a solitary vacation, He's a psychiatrist and spends a lot of time with other people in these like very deep places of their psyche. So he took a walk, um, took a couple of weeks off, and spent his time alone, uh, which is often a component of awakening, spending some time alone in silence. Because it's in, the, in that moment where our own innate wisdom can arise and he said he was taking this walk through an old-growth redwood forest in Northern California, and he suddenly had this epiphany that he was a, a part of everything. He felt that, that, that he, his own consciousness was somehow expanded and that he was a part of everything. And it's a wonderful thing to contemplate when you're out there, that you're somehow a part of everything, that your own consciousness is not distinct. But he said the most reassuring aspect of that was that he knew he would, he would experience bodily death, but this all would continue. It would all continue. And so a part of him would continue to thrive. <laughs> to blossom and grow and bear fruit and make bunnies, even after his own death. And suddenly his worries fell away, and he just existed in this state of kind of um, spiritual reassurance. And that's also what we're celebrating. We see this life force, this life force coming and coming and coming, and in the same way that it gave birth to us, it's giving birth to all of these things, and we may die. Our body will die, but this consciousness will survive bodily death. It will continue and continue, and we are a part of that continuation in some way. So Thich Nhat Hanh says on birthdays, you don't say happy birthday, you say happy continuation day. Because <laughs> you're continuing. And somehow, when that spiritual reassurance takes root in our minds, we get a lot happier. We get less worried. And we're able to extend a lot more love and compassion to ourselves first and to one another second. 
Um, I want to tell you this story about a monk, Tibetan monk, um, that was sent to me. It's a really beautiful story, and I actually think it's true. A lot of these you don't know when you get them on the internet, but this one seems to actually have happened. Um, you know, like the three cups of tea problem. There are these problems now about these stories. But at least they're wonderful, even if they're not entirely true. But I think this one's true, and it's called Downwind from the Flowers, and you're welcome to check it out. So several years ago in Seattle, Washington, there lived a 52-year-old Tibetan refugee, Tenzin, as I will call him, was diagnosed with one of the more curable forms of lymphoma. He was admitted to the hospital and received his first dose of chemotherapy. But during the treatment, this usually gentle man became extremely angry and upset. He pulled the IV out of his arm and refused to cooperate. He shouted at the nurses and became argumentative with everyone who came near him. The doctors and nurses were baffled. Then Tenzin's wife spoke to the hospital staff. She told them Tenzin had been held as a political prisoner by the Chinese for 17 years. They killed his first wife and repeatedly tortured and brutalized him throughout his imprisonment. She told them that the hospital rules and regulations coupled with the chemotherapy treatments gave Tenzin horrible flashbacks of what he had suffered at the hands of the Chinese. I know you mean to help him, she said, but he feels tortured by your treatments. They're causing, causing him to feel hatred inside, just like he felt toward the Chinese. He would rather die than to live with the hatred he is now feeling. And according to our belief, it is very bad to have hatred in your heart at the time of death. He needs to be able to pray and cleanse his heart. So he was discharged. And people came to help him, and what he said that he needed <laughs> was um, that to, when the spring came, the writer of the story said, I asked Tenzin what Tibetans do when they are ill in the spring. And he smiled brightly, and he said, we sit downwind of the flowers. We sit downwind of the flowers. So she says, I thought he must be speaking poetically, but Tenzin's words were quite literal. He told me Tibetans sit downwind so they can be dusted with the new blossom's pollen that floats on the spring breeze. I guess they're not allergic. <laughs> they feel this new pollen is strong medicine. At first, finding enough blossoms seemed a bit daunting. Then one of my friends suggested that Tenzin visit some of the local flower nurseries. So they set up a nursery in town where Tenzin would come and sit in a lounge chair and be wafted by the flower pollen. And <laughs> she said, so the next weekend I picked up Tenzin and his wife with their provisions for the afternoon, black tea, butter, salt, cups, cookies, prayer beads, and prayer books. I dropped them off the nursery and assured them I would be return at 5 o'clock. The following weekend, Tenzin and his wife visited another nursery. And they went through town to all the nurseries. The third weekend, they went to yet another nursery. 
The fourth weekend, I began to get calls from the nurseries, inviting Tenzin and his wife to come again. One of the managers said, we've got a new shipment of Nicotiana coming in and some wonderful fuchsias, and oh yes, some great Daphne. I know they would love the scent of Daphne, and I almost forgot we have some new lawn furniture that Tenzin and his wife might enjoy. Later that day, I got a call from another nursery saying they had colorful wind socks that would help Tenzin predict where the wind was blowing. <laughs> Pretty soon, the nurseries were competing for Tenzin's <laughs> visits. People began to know and care about the Tibetan couple. The nursery employees started setting out the lawn furniture in the direction of the wind. Others would bring out fresh hot water for their tea. Some of the regular customers would leave their wagons of flowers near the two of them. It seemed that a community was growing around Tenzin and his wife. At the end of the summer, Tenzin returned to his doctor for another CT scan to determine the extent of the spread of the cancer. But the doctor could find no evidence of cancer at all. He was dumbfounded. He told Tenzin that he just couldn't explain it. Tenzin lifted his finger and said, I know why the cancer has gone away. It could no longer live in a body that is filled with love. When I began to feel all the compassion from the hospice people, the nursery employees, and all those people who wanted to know about me, I started to change inside. Now I feel fortunate to have the opportunity to heal in this way. Doctor, please don't think that your medicine is the only cure. Sometimes compassion can cure cancer as well. We can't always. But what healed him and what often heals all of us is the kind of care and compassion that we feel from one another. And that care and compassion that is extended to us from one another, which is a great teaching of Christianity, Buddhism, Hinduism, Muslimism, too and paganism. What arises when we awaken is a very deep equanimity that is infused with a sense of affection and care first for ourselves and who we are. And as we drop into that infusion, like an infusion of the scent of beautiful flowers, we are able to extend, and not only are we able to, but we, what arises is the wanting to, the desire to extend that care to all beings in all directions. And in many ways, that's what we're called to do on this day at this moment, on this day of Easter, which is about rebirthing to our own true nature, which is love and compassion. We're made of it to rebirthing and resurrecting to the awareness of our own nature, which is love itself. And as that arises in consciousness, this automatically, the same way blossoms burst on the trees, blossoms of understanding, of wisdom and compassion arise inside of us. And we don't have to do anything to get there, just like nature doesn't, except relax. But as we drop into our own true nature, which is infused 
with love and compassion, we automatically want to extend that to others. And as we extend that to others, our own sense of well-being is greatly enhanced, exponentially enhanced. And we're in a way called upon that task at this time of the year to blossom ourselves through our own true nature. And in that blossoming, become a light to others. The Buddha said as he was dying, make of yourself a light before you die. Those were his dying words. And can we do that for ourselves and for each other? There's a great, um, and I'll finish with this, there's a, a one of the songs that we sing at the Passover Seder is called Dainu. Yeah, it goes Dai Dainu, Dai Dainu. It's very like Dai Dainu, 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 Dainu. People get all lively. If you've been drinking, you're all panting the tambourine. Dai Dainu, Dai Dainu, 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 and you like it so much, you sing it again. Dai Dainu, and what it means is sufficiency. And it's all about the story, you know, if God had you know, freed us from slavery but not drowned all the Egyptians in the sea, that would have been enough. But then he also gave us these tablets, and that would have been enough. But then he also guided us to the Holy Land, and that would have been It's all of these things that would have been enough, but then yet more came. So this year, really for the first time in attempting to understand that, I translated it into my own life. I said, oh, if, you know, if I had just had my, just having my health is enough. But I also have these two really cool dogs. And that's enough. But I also have this like really beautiful house. And that's enough. And I also have this fantastic lover. And that's really enough. But she's also gorgeous. And that's enough. <laughs> but she also came over yesterday and walked the dogs when I couldn't. And that's really sufficient. <laughs> and it trains us to look at our lives not with the eye of deficiency, which is our common tendency. I can give another whole teaching about that. But with the eye of sufficiency and resting in that sufficiency, we um, become much more kind. So let's end on that. Die, 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 Thank you, Nina. Will you be around for the, our social hour? Uh, so yeah. I can stay around. And do we want to do some questions? Do we have a few minutes? Um, will you be around? No. But you'll be able to answer any questions during the social hour. How about announcements? Uh, this is for the, the longer term members of TDF. They remember, uh, we had a, a, a member of TDF community. His name is Howard King. Um, sad news is he died recently. Um, he, uh, what you and uh, there's a memorial service for him this coming Saturday. If you're interested, uh, see me afterwards. I don't, I don't have the information with me, but I can get the information with you.
My name is Kenneth, I'm the host today. So please stay and enjoy the fellowship of the Sangha, and um, the universe will feed you. Um, there's uh, tea and refreshments. If you have some tea, please uh, wash your cup with hot soapy water. I'll be going around with the Donna Bowl. Um, please feel free to contribute to meeting the expenses of the Sangha to whatever level you is comfortable. Um, five to eight dollars is thrown there, that's a suggestion. Um, some people gather around 12.30 to go out to lunch today, um, maybe for an Easter brunch. Um, so just meet at the uh, front door around 12.30. Thank you. Jerry? Hi. Uh, Nia, thank you for coming today. Next week we'll have open discussion. It's, uh, I think you're probably a new person, but we, we break up into groups and we have a topic. Mm. And I have a mailing list out there. If anyone would like to sign, I give uh, improv classes and uh, give performances and Dharma talks like this. So it'd be great if you want to stay in touch to us on the list. I'd love to let you know about other offerings that I'm giving. And there's also um, uh, some tapes and, and CDs out there. And in this quite fabulous book, the title of which a wonderful rich life when you don't have time for something like that. <laughs> <laughs> it's a wonderful book. Um, another, uh, in two weeks, we're having uh, one of our poetry dates, and uh, Shantanu Fukan, who is a poet and translator, is going to be um, kicking it off. But there was, he expressed that there were some people who had sh shared some confusion that they thought they had to write a poem. Uh, and that's not the case. Just uh, if you've written one that you want to share, that's fabulous. But basically, if there's a poem in your heart, you know that you know that has shed light and truth on your life, please come and share this. We've done this twice before, and it's quite wonderful to hear people stand up and use their voice and really deliver um, the truth. Um, on a personal note, um, some of you know I sing with the San Francisco Choral Society, and next Saturday and Sunday we're doing a gorgeous program of Dvorak's Mass of D and um, uh, Morton Lawson's Luke's Eternal, Eternal Light, um, which is absolutely ravishing. It's a gorgeous concert, uh, and we have some wonderful soloists, but they have a very small part. It's, it's, so it's a huge, hugely a choral, big choral experience, 165 people singing, mm -hmm. and uh, it's it's powerful, it's fabulous. <laughs> 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 and it's cheap if you can get tickets at the door. It's at Calvary Presbyterian at Moore Jackson at 8 o'clock on Saturday and 4 and 7. And I'll, and I'll do it for it in the email. Thank you. Fantastic. I also want to announce, uh, save the day. Um, I'm announcing it a little bit early, but in uh, September uh, is our annual GBF retreat. This year it will be on the 16th, 17th, and 18th of September. Um, it's once a year, and you'll, we'll, we'll, um, the next newsletter letter should have registration on June and more information forthcoming. But uh, save the date, once again, September 16th through the 18th. It's a really wonderful retreat. I actually have been to it for the past three years, and it's, it's really a great way to, you know, get a little closer to the people that you chat with or have lunch with or whatever. It's always a really beautiful experience, so please, please keep it in mind. Also, uh, Roger Pinnell, who is our Sangha member, who has received his bone marrow transplant a couple of Wednesdays ago. He's in the hospital still, 
Uh, he was hoping to be home around perhaps this weekend, but um, he has developed a cold, which, uh, and he doesn't have the defense, enough defense right now to get better from it. So he is struggling a little bit. I've talked to him yesterday. I'm going to go and see him today, so I'll send your, your well wishes. But if you, if you get a chance, he is on the, on the newsletter, or not the newsletter, but the, um, the sign-up sheet, or Director. the director, thank you. Um, you know, give him a call and just say, hey, and just wish him well. Is he a general? He's at actually UC Medical Center, Long Hospital on the 11th floor. When I go to see him now, I have to wear a mask. So, um, but they have an exercise bike in there, so they, they allow him to do a little exercise, but he's going a little stir-crazy. Hopefully he'll be out. Are visitors encouraged? Um, yes, the, the only thing is it's better to, at the beginning, on the front end, before the transplant, and even after the transplant, people are just kind of popping in saying hello. It's better to call now and check in. Um, he knows I'm coming this afternoon, but I checked with him because there were days when he wasn't really up for actually having someone there. He didn't have the energy, but you know, he's rallying. He's doing his best. Okay. Um, is there anyone else? Okay, let's go ahead and stand for our dedication tonight. practice, may all beings have happiness and the causes of happiness. May all be free from sorrow and the causes of sorrow. May all never be separated from the sacred happiness, which is without sorrow. And may all live in equanimity, without too much attachment, too much aversion, and live believing in the equality of all that lives. Thank you all. Thank you for listening to the Gay Buddhist Forum. If you would like to hear several new talks per month and be notified of upcoming speakers so you can participate live, please subscribe to this podcast, like us on Facebook, and join our mailing list by visiting gaybuddhist.org.